Good morning. It's good to see y'all here in the room. It's good to see you too, at home or wherever you are. I am excited to get a chance to throw my two cents in on this curveball series that we've been doing these last few weeks. Um, you know, I've almost gotten used to playing music in front of these cameras. But preaching, I don't know. I'm a little worried about it because there's people here. I, I want to talk to you all as well. And so uh, I'm a little nervous about, about this. But, um, but uh, I really do trust and hope that, that what I've got planned for us this morning will be an encouragement to you like it's been to me. So uh, just a full disclaimer, I'm not a baseball guy like our pastor Tony is. He, he's eat up with it. Um, but I hope you're tracking with this idea of a curveball series that we're, we're doing right now. Uh, you know, to hit a ball with a bat is, is something that a lot of us learn how to do at a pretty young age, or at least we try. Um, and it becomes instinctive for some of us who get, who get good enough at it. Um, but there's actually a lot of math involved that manifests itself with, you know, hopefully some, some decent hand-eye coordination. Um, but if you're going to swing at a, at a ball um, and, and reasonably hope to hit it, you have to plan to have your bat meet the ball where you think it's going to be when it comes near the plate. And that's a pretty lame explanation of what it's like to hit a baseball. But when a pitch is a curveball, the, the ball doesn't show up where you expect it to be. That's, that's, again, layman's terms. I want to show a quick video, uh, though, that just sort of highlights how difficult these things can be. Would you guys go ahead and start running some of that, of that video, please? So, again, Tony's explained this. Some of, the, some of the best pitchers in the world, against some of the best batters in the world, and you can see just how foolish some of them look trying to swing at these pitches. See, and you, my favorite part of this video is to watch their reaction, the batters, because sometimes they just can't believe it. They're like, how did that ball show up and may it be a strike? See, he thought that was going to hit him. Just a few more. That's filthy. See, it really highlights... I think the, the difficulty of trying to hit a ball that is spinning and moving. I did learn, just doing a little bit of research on this, there are all sorts of different kinds of curveballs, uh, off-speed pitches, balls that move, sliders, sinkers, all these things. And so you're seeing a, uh, a wide variety here. It's still pretty cool. That's probably enough. Um, I hope you can just, again, understand, maybe just a little bit. Again, these are the best batters in the world. And sometimes they look downright stupid. Sometimes it, it literally drops them to their knees. They're so off balance trying to hit these balls. And so, you know, like Tony said last week, uh, most people can't even recognize a curveball, much less adjust to it and hit it. It's no coincidence, by the way, that I stopped playing baseball about the time I was old enough to be, to be getting curveballs thrown to me. That's not the only reason my, my baseball career was cut short, but suffice to say this morning, for the sake of our, our, our conversation, I don't deal well with curveballs, not in baseball or in life. 
And all of, all of this, what we've been going through the last couple months, is it's been a, it's been a difficult curveball for me. I'll just be honest. You know, no one knew, and we, and we still don't know just how long it will be until we're able to gather together again as a church family here the way we want to. Um, last week, the first Sunday that we opened our doors, it was bittersweet for me. I'll just, again, I'll just be honest. I, I think I've known ever since, I can't remember when it was, but whenever we realized that we were going to have to do Easter in this strange sort of online format, I think I've known since then that whenever we could open the doors back up and, and, and people could, could attend again, I've known that it wasn't going to be this, this joyous big mass reunion where, where everyone just shows back up all of a sudden and we're, and we're hugging and, and, it's, and everyone's happy. It wasn't like that last week. If you were here, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it was great to see so many smiling faces, but even behind the masks. But it just, it wasn't what I wanted. It, it, selfishly, it just wasn't what I wanted. And so God has really been teaching me through this and convicting me that I am much too comfortable with my expectations about church and Sundays and, and just corporate worship. I, I miss what I've experienced in here with, with all of you. I miss what I think is, is, is normal and, and right and good. But God's been showing me throughout this whole ordeal that, that what I think is good and, and right and normal is just a shadow of the real thing. That longing I feel to be together will only be truly fulfilled when we are at the true gathering. And that, that feeling of loss that we feel when we're not able to meet together as a church, it should remind us that as believers, we have a seat at a better table through Christ. Uh, and, and if we spend our lives in our comfort zones, and, and if our church experience can be summed up by meeting our preferences, and we all, we all do this. Uh, the, the proof is in the numbers. You can't throw a rock outside and not hit a church. If we spend too much of our energy celebrating having our needs met and mourning when they're not, then we run the risk of missing something very important because the church gathered here in this life points us to the church gathered in heaven for all eternity. And so, yeah, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to be all safely together again here because the joy we have being together now can't be compared to the joy that's, that's promised us in the future. And until that time comes, I will continue to mourn what we're missing out on now to the degree that it makes me ache and hope to see Jesus there and to gather together and to celebrate with the church, enjoying being a part of God's family forever. I just had to get that off my chest, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm trying really hard to be thankful in the midst of this. You know, God could just let us idle right along. You know, being impressed with, being impressed with uh, our, our preaching, with our music, with our, with our building, with our, our, our whatever fancy ministry techniques. You know, basically just being impressed with ourselves. Praise God He doesn't do that. 
We may not like how he does it, but he does it. And honestly, what won't he do to draw people to himself? You know, these curveballs we've been learning about in Scripture are only curveballs because we can't fathom his, his goodness to us. We can't fathom his kindness, his mercy, his, his power, his love, and all the other attributes of, of God. We think we understand how God operates. We swing and we miss. Because God does not do what we expect. He doesn't operate how we expect him to operate. And thank goodness for that. I invite you to turn to your Bibles in uh, the book of Acts. You can go to Acts chapter 8, 9-ish. And, uh, because we'll jump around a bit, but that's where I want to get to shortly. Acts chapter 8, just as a way of introduction, starts off with a, with a bang, I think. The, uh, verse 1 in chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution. He, of course, was Stephen, who was killed for boldly proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Now Saul was a part of the group that killed him. He was there, and he approved But let's let Saul introduce himself. This is from Acts chapter 22. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So Paul was a Pharisee, and a good one too. He really wants you to know how good he was at it. This is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So this was Saul. He was a rock star in the Pharisee world. Violently opposed to Jesus and the church. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says this. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering House after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then there's chapter 9. Read along with me, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's how Saul became Paul. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. I have a memory of being at FCA at Carson Newman back when I was a young college student. Uh, just about a, a quarter of a mile from here in the old uh, Butler Blank Gym, as many of you know. One of the leaders, one random Tuesday night, I think it was a Tuesday night, it doesn't matter. One of the leaders was speaking and said, kind of in a joking manner, um, that if, if Paul was the chief of sinners, then he was number two. And so I grew up in church, so I knew who Paul was. And I'd probably even heard that phrase before, but still it struck me, it caught my attention. Uh, I remember thinking, that's strange that Paul, the Paul, the Apostle Paul would say something like that about himself. That saying, chief of sinners, comes from the King James Version translation of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, which reads like this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And the ESV, the the translation that we use most of the time here at church, uh, isn't much different at all from that. It reads like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now the NIV, another popular translation, says the worst. So it doesn't really matter what translation you're reading it's pretty easy to see what Paul is saying there keep a finger there in first Timothy chapter 1 2 as well because we'll be back there Paul's saying you know by his own estimation that if you were to rank all the sinners in the world from top to bottom he'd be at the very top of the list nobody was farther from God than him 
It's, it's a pretty bold thing to say when you think about it. For a guy who was the author of about half the New Testament. And if you feel the tension there because of that, if you wonder how the gr- probably the greatest Jesus follower of all time could also think he was the most undeserving sinner of all time, then good. That's, that's a healthy place to be. That's where we want to be this morning. Because it can sound like a joke, quite honestly. In the Greek language, Paul is saying, I'm first at sinning. It's like it's not even a competition. You can't sin more than I did, he's saying. This is an oxymoron, obviously, like, like the biggest loser or the friendliest cat or the most honest politician. No one would say something like this. You can add foremost sinner to that list. Who would want to be the number one sinner? Nobody. Why would you brag about that? For Paul, that's an easy question to answer. Because just, just look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we, where we just were. In verse 13, Paul says, back when he was Saul, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And then he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then, though he was the number one sinner, he continues in verse 16 where he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I love Paul's story. It's one of the biggest curveballs in the whole Bible that God would use a Jewish Pharisee and a murderer, the, the number one sinner, to be his chosen ambassador to take the good news about Jesus to the world. That's exactly what he did. It, it boggles the mind when you think about it. You want to hear another curveball? You and I are no better than Paul. We're no worse either, though. Let me ask a question. And honestly, think about this for just a, a few seconds. Do you think you deserve salvation? Does it make sense to you that God would save you? Is it right that your sins are just forgiven, forgotten even by God? And you've got to be careful how you answer that question because how you, well, it reveals a lot about what you believe about God. For me, I, I know what I'd, I'd do. I'd, I'd cheat. And I'd say, no, absolutely not. I I know I don't deserve it. But at the same time, I'd continue to live like the answer is yes. Because I know deep down, I could never deserve God's love. But my sinful flesh fights and claws every day to, to puff me up inside and try to convince me that I bring just a little bit of righteousness to the table. I look at myself on paper and I think, he's got his stuff together. He looks, looks like a decent guy. You know, people who don't know me well probably think I'm a pretty good dude. I've got, the, I've got the wife and the baby and the dog on Instagram and all sorts of other proofs on social media of how good a person I am. You know, maybe your reputation around the office is spotless. Uh, maybe your 
schedule is full of acts of service and giving back. That's great. Maybe instead of saving you out of the, out of the, the, the popular sins like drug addiction or abuse or sexual immorality, he saved you out of overabundance or self-reliance or pride. Maybe some of you are like me. You were saved at a young age and really began to follow Jesus uh, as a teenager. He, he spared me a lot of heartache and, and pain, and, which I'm grateful for, but sometimes I felt like a second-class Christian because my testimony seems boring. I know some people who feel like they're second-class Christians because the sins they struggled with were, were so deep and dark and, and dangerous when they were saved, and there's a lot of lingering guilt there. All of us, are, all of us that are here or watching are probably somewhere on that spectrum. And when we do these kind of moral gymnastics in our, in our minds, what's really happening there is the same thing that, that Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. We focus on us instead of God. You take your eyes off a holy and perfect God, and our accomplishments and, and good works, yeah, they start to look better and better. And our sins less and less serious. It's really easy to think we deserve grace when in reality God calls our good works unclean rags in Isaiah 65. And James, the brother of Jesus, puts this notion to bed in James chapter 2. This is verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So it doesn't matter how good you are, how good you think you are. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. Paul knew this. It's something he would write later. Paul certainly did sin, but thank goodness there's no limit to God's love and grace. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because he could, he could look back on all of the darker moments of his life and he knew exactly why God saved him. To give us hope. To give us hope. Friends, here's a, here's a curveball for you. If God can save Paul, he can save anybody. If God can save Paul, he can save anybody. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. I need to hear that. I need to be reminded of that every day. If the blood of Jesus is able to turn Saul into Paul, to give him a new name and a new life and a, and a second chance then it's enough to forgive your sins too. Chances are you haven't done the things Paul did. Maybe, though, you feel like you could give him a run for his money with that title of number one sinner. Regardless, what, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is enough. So let me give four, I think I have four, four quick takeaways from Paul's miraculous conversion. What does God saving Paul and using him mean for us? This is important, I think. Number one, your past doesn't define what God can do through you in the future. Your past doesn't define what God can do through you in the future. And what I mean by that is it's not a hindrance to you. By every standard, Paul was disqualified for ministry. Can you just imagine that, that, that job interview at the local church? Uh, yes, uh, Paul, do you have any uh, unpaid parking tickets? Nope. Great. 
good. Um, do you ever lie on your taxes? No. Awesome. Awesome. Ever killed anybody? Yes. Okay, thanks for coming in. That's about as far as it would get, right? But God doesn't think like that. And, and, and honestly, the Bible proves that he actually thinks the opposite. He delights to use those who have a troubled past. Those who don't look the part. Those who know pain and disappointment. Because he loves to work through weaknesses and show his strength. That's what brings him glory. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus rescues a man from a, 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 a violent and destructive demonic oppression. And he tells the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Can you see how important this is? Jesus says, go and tell everyone who you were and what you did. And then tell them what I am and what I have done for you. You see, it's impossible for anyone to really see the power of God in our lives without letting his light shine on our past. If Paul did it with his terrible sins, then so can we. And I realize that's insanely hard. But it is so, so important. Point number two, why does God saving Paul and uh, using him, what what does it mean for us? Number two, don't ever give up on someone if they're far from God. You can't be farther from God than Paul was. But God's arm is not too short to save. Paul was going a hundred miles an hour in one direction, and God said, Stop. Talk about a curveball right to the head. Paul didn't just change his course in life, he was undone and made new there on that road. God is still able to do that, and He does. Don't give up if someone you love refuses to believe. You can't pray too much. You can't bother God with your requests, your requests for someone to see the gospel as beautiful. Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow to his disciples, I think this is in Luke 18, so that, quote, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Francis Chan uh, wrote this uh, amazing quote. No soul is too far gone for God to bring back. No heart is too hard for God to soften. No son or daughter is too lost for God to rescue. Keep praying for God to do what only he can. Paul's heart was as hardened as hard can get. Until it wasn't. Remember 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul says God saved him despite being far from God to show us his immeasurable patience towards those who will believe. Never, never give up. Number three, why does God saving Paul and using him, what does it mean for us? It means your confidence belongs in God and not yourself. Fight that urge to minimize your sin and exalt the self. Paul's saying we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. And and this is Philippians chapter 
3, starting in verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) What a cocky guy. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's amazing stuff. You know, Paul's resume, what, which, which he's laying out there for us, it may not seem that significant to, to you or I 2,000 years later, but I guarantee it was to him. He was born to be a Pharisee. And again, he says it over and over again. He was good at it. But Jesus was worth having it all taking away. He's worth losing whatever you think you've gained uh, that's of any value. I say that, and I, and I can't even fathom it. But I know it's true. Paul lost everything he worked towards and wanted. And, and Jesus put an end to it on that Damascus road. And what does Paul say? It was rubbish compared to what I now have in Jesus. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It's who Christ has made us to be. That's why Paul can say that for those of us in Christ, we're, we're, we're no longer Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, male or female. We are a new creation. I just combined a couple of verses there, but... That's basically what he's saying. We are recipients of all of God's promises. So point number four. Why, does, what, what does, why is God saving Paul important for us? Because we're all like Paul. I've, I've, I've said this already, basically. But more specifically, every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we're just like Saul. Before God saved us. Every sinner who's ever been saved had a Damascus Road moment. It doesn't matter who you were or what you were doing. Whether you were 7 years old or or 45. We might not even be aware of it when when God stops us. When He intervenes for us. When He he throws us that that, that curveball that we can't even see or weren't looking for. When he gives us a new purpose and a, and a new direction. You may not feel like your story is like Paul's, but it is. There's no difference between us and him. The same God that saved Paul from his sins saved you if you believe. And the same God that sent Paul sends us now to continue that same work. You and I struggle just like Paul did. I love how honest and vulnerable Paul is about his struggles. He wasn't perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. Paul shows us what it's like to fight sin and press on towards the prize with the same strength, God's strength, at our disposal. 
Let me close real fast by just saying that we have to fight to avoid uh, two traps, neither of which I think God wants for us. It's a terrible mistake to minimize sin and belittle God's kindness. It's also a terrible mistake to be a slave to the things that Jesus paid the price for on the cross. And so it's such a great gift that God gives us Paul to model that for us. Because shouldn't our goal be the same as his? To display the gospel to others in good times and in the middle of global pandemics? How amazing is it that Paul, the foremost sinner, could say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, follow me, because that's what I'm doing. He had the guts to say it, and he had the guts to live it. Is it a curveball that God would save Paul? Absolutely. But it's just as big a curveball that he would save me and you. Praise God he loves curveballs. Let it be our prayer that our lives, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, like Paul's, would point others to the miracle of God's love for us through Jesus. Galatians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24 say, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let it be so with us. We pray with me. God, I'm, I'm in awe this morning and that you would save sinners. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners is a miracle that uh, we pass by so quickly. Help us just sit in the beauty of that truth this morning. And we thank you for Paul. We thank you for Paul, who you did so much through. You worked so mightily in him. And yet he knew that he could never earn your love. He could never, he could never work to repay or, 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 or earn your forgiveness. That it was a free gift. He helps us so much. We thank you for the, for the letters that he wrote, for his ministry that we have witness of in, in the Gospels, in, or in the New Testament. Help us continue the work that he started 2,000 years ago. Give us that same confidence in your strength, in your strength alone. Help us to, to not be slaves, God, to the, the things that we have done, but free us to love and serve and to to lose our lives for, for you and thus gain it. We thank you for this time that we have this morning to sing and to gather together. God, we pray for the day, not just where Providence Church can meet again here in this building, 
but we anticipate and hope and long for the day that we'll, we can be with you where you are in heaven with the saints, with the true church and perfect peace and happiness and, and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.